Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's happening here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media. So be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now enjoy the message. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Happy to have those of you who watch online. Thank you for sharing the service as you do, and we are appreciative of that. Let me encourage you to invite someone you know to be a part of one of our Christmas Eve services. It's just on the horizon now, and statistics show that 80% of the people when invited actually will attend. And so uh, let me encourage you, you probably have a family member or a friend who aren't connected to anyone else's church. Uh, invite them to be with you and be a part of one of our Christmas Eve services. People typically go to church twice a year, right? We know what times those are. That's Christmas time, Easter time, right? You have the poinsettias and you have the lilies. So let's don't miss that opportunity. Really for church world, it is kind of like our Super Bowl. So we want to not miss the opportunity we have to reach people who do not yet know Jesus. Let me ask you, how many of you are done with decorating for Christmas? All of your decorations are done. Would you raise your hand? If you're able, you're not too sore. Oh, look at that. You overachievers, you. How many have you uh, have not even started? You have not even started yet. There's my people. God bless you. How many of you are just not voting on anything? You're not raising your hand about, okay, that's what I thought. Wow, it's that crazy season. I talked to some folks in the lobby. It sounds like they went full Griswold. I mean, just hearing them describe their decorations and more power to you, go for it, man. Making those memories, it's a really truly is a great time of the year. And I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful season with your friends. It's just, you know, the anticipation for the kids, they're already looking forward to it. My grandkids are already giving me hints about what they want for Christmas. Your kids and grandkids are probably doing the same with you. Everybody's looking forward to that day, right? The certain for Santa has begun. And so it's going to be here before you know it. And you, when I think about looking forward to the Christmas season, really that's what the whole Old Testament is about. The theme of the Old Testament is looking forward to Christmas. It's looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. It's looking forward to Jesus. If I could give you a simple outline of your Bible, if I could break it in three pieces, here's what I would tell you. The Old Testament could be uh, outlined this way. Jesus is coming. (laughs) He's coming. Jesus, one day, the Messiah, one day, he'll be here. And then when you get to the Gospels, the outline would be Jesus is here. Here he is. This is the Savior of the world. Then when you get to Acts chapter 1, you have the ascension of Jesus through Revelation 22, 21. The outline would be Jesus is coming again. Are you getting a theme here? It's all about Jesus. That's why if you read the Old Testament and you don't see Jesus, you really ought to reread it. Because every type, every symbol, Everything in the Old Testament is pointing toward the coming of Messiah. Jesus one day will come. In fact, his prophecy of his uh, coming is seen in Genesis 3.15. It's the very first prophecy in the Bible. And it comes right on the heel of the fall of man in sin. You have the promise of the Savior. In other words, sin is not on the picture a millisecond before God has already provided a way to help us overcome sin. You have sin, you have a Savior almost immediately. In fact, when you listen to what uh, John wrote in Revelation, he says concerning Jesus, Jesus was the lamb slain, now get this phrase, before the foundation of the world. 
before God ever stepped from nowhere to stand on nothing and speak everything into existence, he worked out our plan of salvation. He said, look, if we create mankind in our image and in our likeness, the Imago Dei, if we do that, and we give them a mind of their own, we give them free will, and we give them a choice, they're gonna choose against us. The tree in the garden was not placed there so that man would choose against God. The tree in the garden was placed there so man would choose to love God. God always wanted people to have a choice. You have a choice this morning. Nobody can force you. Any religion that tries to control you through your mind is not Christianity. He always deals with the heart. He always tries to motivate us through our belief system. And he placed the tree in the garden so that we could choose to love him and not love him because we had no choice. If you're not free not to love someone, you're truly not free to love someone. So they worked all this out, guys, before God ever created anything. Jesus knew he would one day go to the cross. And so when sin enters the picture, you see this prophecy about the bruising of one's head while the bruising of one's heel takes place. The bruising of a head indicates a death blow. The bruising of the heel uh, uh, illustrates a crippling blow. So he's talking about this good and evil, this coming of Jesus and the dealing with the devil. One would kill the other one. Jesus would ultimately win out overall. And he would come, the Bible says, and this was a strange thing because it was a, and is a biological impossibility. He said he would come, here it is, of the seed of the woman. And we all know that's a biological impossibility. So in Genesis 3.15, you have the first reference to a virgin birth. This will be a sign. In fact, Isaiah 7.14, he said, this is a sign. <laughs> the sign will be a virgin will conceive, bring forth a child, Emmanuel, God with us. What's my point? My point is from the garden, from the very beginning of all things, Mankind was given a clear instruction that the Messiah one day would come to take away the sins of the world. So you have this looking forward. In fact, let me give you this, it's interesting. Um, when Adam and Eve named their firstborn child, they named their firstborn child Cain. The name Cain in that ancient language means acquisition, or he is here. Now, they believed so strongly that the Messiah one day would come through the women that they said concerning their firstborn son, he's here, <laughs> acquisition. Now they were way off. <laughs> Cain was the first murderer of the Bible, but I want you to see the faith that Adam and Eve had. They placed their faith. You see, there's always and only been one way to Jesus. There's not an Old Testament way and a New Testament way and a new way today. No, there's always only been one way. The people in the Old Testament were saved by faith. Read Hebrews 11. It lists all those Old Testament saints. They were saved by faith looking forward to the cross, believing one day Jesus would come. The people today on the other side of the cross were saved by faith looking back at the cross, believing one day Jesus did come. Moses didn't see Jesus any more than I have, and yet Moses is in heaven as I one day will be because of my faith in the fact that Jesus Christ came into the world. It's always been about that. So in the Old Testament, you have this looking forward to event that's going to happen. We call it prophecy, prophecy. Some scholars say there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about the coming of Jesus. I hadn't counted them. I'll take their word for it. 300, they say. The word prophesy means to foretell or foretell. And so you have this foretelling that led to a foretelling of the story of Jesus, the Messiah, who would come into the world. And as I said, every one of those Old Testament books dealt with that issue. 
Jesus would be the sacrifice that would end the sacrificial system. Hebrews talks about his sacrifice offered once and for all, ended all the sacrificial system of that Old Testament economy. So there was a looking forward to the day in which Jesus one day would come. So my topic this morning is that Jesus, you say, what child is this? He is a child of prophecy. We believe Jesus was prophesied his coming. In fact, look with me in uh, Isaiah 9. Let me give you the verse I wanted to share with you this morning. Isaiah 9, 6, it really underpins my talk. In Isaiah 9, 6, I love the way Isaiah words this, for unto us a child is born. You get the, the personal touch he puts on that. He didn't say unto you or unto some future. He said unto us. Let me just stop long enough to say Jesus comes into your life as a personal savior. I can't make decisions concerning faith for my children, I try to, and Cindy and I, we, we brought them to church from the time they were small because we want them exposed to the gospel. That's why we want them in church that teaches the Bible because we want them exposed to the truth. And our belief was always that when they're of age and they're old enough to reason for themselves, they'll make their own decision about Jesus. And that's true of your kids. Is you just want to get them exposed to the right stuff and you pray that at some point in their young lives, they'll take ownership of their faith. Now, that doesn't mean our kids aren't going to make mistakes because they're our kids. <laughs> the Bible just simply says, train up the child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they'll not depart. The proverb didn't say those little boogers might not twist off when they're young. He just says when they're old, everything you put in them tends to come back out of them. And I can tell you from experience, my parents got smarter the older I got. Have you found that to be true? So the point I'm making is when you bring them in at an early age, then they come to terms with their faith and you pray that at some point they take ownership of their faith and your savior but now becomes their savior. And Jesus is a personal savior. When Isaiah prophesied, by the way, I don't know if you've already got Christmas cards out, if you're doing that or not. Um, kind of like birth announcements, you know, you're trying to get all those out. Did you know this passage I'm reading to you? You talk about getting the announcement out early, 740 years before he came. That's getting them out early right there. That's an early birth announcement. And listen to it again. They say, unto us, and underscore this, a child is born. I'll talk about that. And again, unto us, a son is given. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. And then the government will be on his shoulder, and I'll finally talk about that. Next week, I'll get into his name being called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But this morning, I just want to dissect a little bit that first part of that birth announcement talking about the coming of Jesus. And the Bible first says here that when Jesus comes, he will be a child that is born. The first thing I want to point out is what I'm calling the humanity, the humanity of Jesus. Now, in order to be the perfect type, to be a redeemer kinsman that Ruth talked about in the book of Ruth, Jesus would have to be one of us. He could not redeem us merely in his role as God. He would have to be one of us in order to bear our sin. But how can he bear our sin without being sinful? Well, he bears the sin without being sinful because he's not born of the seed of Adam, as we are. But he was born with the seed of the woman, which means a virgin birth. He was born through the power of the work of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, that overshadowed Mary. And that Mary became pregnant with this baby named Jesus. And so Jesus was never tainted with the sin of Adam. You and I have that. In fact, let me give you a, a verse that supports that. Romans 5, 12. Sin came into the world. How? By one man, Adam and Eve. 
And the Bible says, and death came as a result of sin, right? And then note this phrase, but death now has been passed to all men for all have sinned. So you and I are inherently sinful. Um, that's not an insult to your intelligence. It just means we all sin. <laughs> Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Listen, I've told you before, I wouldn't trust my best five minutes to be good enough to get me into heaven. <laughs> I'm just saying we've all sinned. I, in fact, in the Old Testament, you had to violate the law in order to be guilty of the law. You had to actually break one of the commandments in order to be guilty of them. In the New Testament, Jesus comes along and says, if you think about breaking the commandment, you're guilty of it. Wow. So in other words, you had to, had to kill someone in the Old Testament to be guilty of murder, but Jesus said, if you hate them bad enough to kill them, you've already killed them in your heart. Now listen, <laughs> I'd rather you hate me than kill me. <laughs> he, he's just making a point. And the point he's trying to make is to make us all aware that we all have in some form or another violated a command. If not in actuality, at least the spirit of the command. We have in some way, in fact, let me tighten it up a little more. The Bible says the thought of foolishness is sin. Now, who among us has not had at least one foolish thought this morning? Since you got up. <laughs> I like that. I told you that old uh, theologian Clint Eastwood, remember, and unforgiving. We all got it coming. That's it. We're all sinful. So Jesus could not bear our sin if he was sinful himself. So he had to come into this world as the sinless son of God. So he was born of a virgin, not with the seed of Adam. And in doing so, he was free from sin. And in order to be the perfect type and the perfect example of the Old Testament, he would have to be born without spot or without blemish, meaning, again, without sin. In fact, when Jesus came into the world, he came born of Mary, the virgin. That was the sign and fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 7:14. He came as Emmanuel. The word Emmanuel means God with us. If you think about his humanity, think about it this way. He was as much as, uh, just as much of a man as though he were never God. In a moment, I'll talk about the fact he was just as much God as though he were never a man. He was the God-man, God incarnate. He was God in flesh. So Jesus Christ came into the world to identify with us. Let me give you a beautiful way in which that works out. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. The Bible says we don't have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmity. Have you ever talked to someone and you really needed their counsel or you might need their comfort, and while you're bearing your heart, they just look glazed over at you? Just like, there's just nothing going on right now. Just kind of, there's nothing between those ears. No empathy, no sympathy, no nothing, just glaze. Have you ever had that experience? Kind of, it kind of breaks your heart a little bit. I mean, you're kind of laying yourself out there and you're kind of pouring your heart out to them and they're just looking at you like, uh, you don't go eat? I mean, they got nothing. I don't even know if they listen. Do you know you'll never have that experience when you share your heart with Christ? When you go to him in prayer, the assurance that he gets it, that he gets you, is the fact of Hebrews 4.15. You have a high priest who can be touched he empathizes and he sympathizes. You could say, I, I was betrayed by a friend. He'd say, me too. 
You see, I've suffered uh, through the loss of a loved one. He'd see me too. He'd say, I, I, I've gone where I didn't know where my, you know, my next meal or where I was going to spend the night. He said, the birds of the air have nests and the foxes of the earth have holes, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Me too. Meaning that there's not a human emotion that you can experience because he's man that he doesn't get. In fact, the Bible says, he goes on to say, he was in all points tempted. And you could put out beside the word tempted, tested. A temptation is something that comes from the devil, according to James. The difference between a temptation and a test is this. A temptation is a solicitation to do anything that would go against God's word and his will for your life. God has a plan for you, and when you go against that because you're drawn to something else, that's a temptation. And then a test is an evaluation to see if you're ready to be promoted. On one side of one situation, the devil will tempt you, and on the other side of the very same situation, God is testing you to see if you can handle life at the next level. And the Bible says concerning Jesus, we have a high priest who can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, and he was in all points tempted and tested as we are. The difference is, he was without sin. Man, none of us can say that. But he gets us. He understands us. There's nothing you may go through in life that he cannot relate to. You remember the story in John 11 when Lazarus dies? And Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they often welcome Jesus into their home. Did you know bad things happen to homes where Jesus is welcomed into? I know sometimes that stretches your faith and people think, well, I thought if you follow God, you're healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's just not biblical. Sometimes you're sick, broke, and stupid. <laughs> it just doesn't always work out that way. I'm just saying that into this home that Jesus frequented, there was a man who was sick and his sickness was unto death. And when you read John 11, they did everything anyone would do when you have a loved one that's terminally ill. They reached out to Jesus for help. And come to find out, he's two miles away in Bethany. He's about us to the Chick-fil-A. <laughs> and he's about two miles away. And instead of responding to them, he doesn't do anything. And not only did he not respond, he didn't even send one of the staff. <laughs> Boy, I've learned in pastoring a church now for 45 years and being in ministry for that long, some things you need to go on or you need some, somebody that looks just like you to go on, <laughs> you know? Not only did he not go, he didn't see anybody even look like him. He, in fact, Lazarus dies, and now Mary and Martha are upset. And they're right. You know what they said? If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus didn't say, you're wrong. He said, no, that's true. I could have stopped it, and I didn't. And all of a sudden, he said, where have you buried him? They go out to the tomb. And Jesus stands at the tomb, and when you read this context, he said he groaned within the spirit, literally meaning he would allow himself to be overwhelmed with grief. Over, I don't know if you've ever been that broken where you're overwhelmed with grief. Your heart is not, broken is not a good word. Crushed is a better word. Your heart is crushed. Jesus stood at the tomb, and the Bible records the shortest verse in all of Scripture. Jesus wept. Now, guys, I've read that a hundred times. It's comforted me a lot since Cindy went to heaven. And I've often wondered, I think like a man, so I'm thinking, why didn't Jesus just jump? Oh, sound of freedom there going over. Um, why didn't Jesus just, well, that's a lot of it there. Why didn't he just uh, jump that emotional experience? You know, why didn't he just jump that and go right to the calling Lazarus back from the dead? Remember how the story Lazarus come for? 
Why did he allow himself to be so overwhelmed by emotion and weep at the tomb of Lazarus? I, I thought at one point, I said, well, because he's human, he's one of us, and maybe, maybe he wanted to know what it feels like to lose someone you love. I thought, man, that, that kind of makes sense. And I thought about it, and I said, well, though, as we'll see in a moment, he's God, and being God, he's sovereign, so he would have already known that. So it wasn't so that he would know how it feels. Here's what I think it is. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus so that we would know that he knows how it feels. You see that? He wept so that I would know that he knows. Not that he know, would need to know. He's already, he doesn't have to experience to know it. He already knew that being God. And yet as a man, he weeps and I see him weeping and I know that he knows how I feel when I grieve. Of course, I've often thought about that story about what a bad deal that was for Lazarus. Can you imagine? Here you are. You just, because I don't believe in soul sleep because the Bible doesn't teach it. Death is separation. Separation of the spirit and soul from the body. 2 Corinthians 5 says to be absent from the body is to be present with it. Well, what becomes absent? The soul, the part of you that's eternal, the part of you that's life. 1 Thessalonians 5, I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body, trichotomy. Some call it um, uh, um, dichotomy. They believe the spirit and soul are one. I, potato, potato. I call it trichotomy. Spirit and soul and body. And so what happens when you die? Spirit and soul leave the body. The body sleeps, goes back to the earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, waits for the morning of the resurrection when it will be glorified, reunited with the spirit and soul that are with God. So can you imagine that happened to Lazarus? Lazarus' spirit ascends into the heaven as his body is placed into the tomb, and Lazarus is enjoying such beauty and splendor and amazing things. When John wrote about heaven, he had to use negatives to describe it. He he didn't have the vocabulary to describe how amazing heaven is, and here's Lazarus enjoying all that, and all of a sudden, he gets called, recalled. (laughs) Lazarus, come to the office. Good news and bad news, son. What would you like first? What's the bad news? Bad news, you're going back. Good news, you'll end up here ultimately. But can you imagine what a deal that was for Lazarus to have to go back? Go back. But the point I'm making, and I hope you don't miss this point, is Jesus empathizes and he sympathizes. And this morning, you may not feel anybody gets you. You may not feel like anybody understands you. But I'm telling you, you have a God who one day walked among us and he gets it. He gets you. There's not an emotion, there's not a feeling you can express. Why? Because he was a child born. Let me hurry now. He was also, secondly, he was a son given. A son. He was the son of God given. So you see the humanity of Jesus, and now you see the deity of Jesus. He is a son given. I gave you this a moment ago. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. You say, what is the word? Drop down to verse 14. The Bible says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld him, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus explained it more in John 10.10. He said, I and the Father are one. Then he said to Philip in John 14, verse 9, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. So Jesus made it clear that he and the Father were one, that Jesus was man, and yet Jesus was and is God. And if he's man that can sympathize with us, then he's God, so he has all the power that you and I need. 
There's nothing that he can't do because he's God. In fact, it's interesting when Paul was writing about this in Romans chapter one, he says that Jesus was declared to be God three ways. Romans one, two through four. The first way was through power. The second way he's declared to be God was through the spirit of holiness. And the third way he was declared to be God was by the resurrection of the dead. Let's break that apart. First, by power. No one did the miracles Jesus did. No one had that power to touch and heal, to raise people from the dead, to give lame legs the ability to walk and deaf ears the ability to hear and blinded eyes the ability to see, to multiply fish and bread so that thousands are fed. There wasn't anything he couldn't do. So when they looked at Jesus just by that alone, they said only if someone from God could have the power that this man has. And Paul says, amen. In Romans 1, 2, he's declared to be the son of God according to his power. Secondly, Paul said he's declared to be the son of God according to the spirit of holiness. No one was as righteous as Jesus. No one was as holy as Jesus. You remember even in the closing moments of his life when Pilate was trying to find a just cause to put him to death? And Pilate sent all the investigators out of the then known world to try to find anything on him. It'd be the equivalent today of FBI, CIA, Homeland Security, local police, state, I mean, marshalling every resource in law enforcement to try to find one something that I've ever done wrong. Let me tell you how long that would take. They wouldn't get out of kindergarten. My mother was my kindergarten teacher. And what she would do when we got in trouble, which was a frequent thing for me, was that she would take the, the chalkboard, right? And then she'd draw a circle, and then you'd have to go stand and stick your nose in the circle on the chalkboard. Anybody have that experience? I know I'm older than dirt, but I get it. Thank you. And what I would do, a kid like me, is take my nose and erase the circle. <laughs> you know. Look like I was snorting something. I had all that powder on my nose. Not that I'd know anything about that. And my mother then would apply the, uh, shall we say, the board of education to my seat of knowledge. <laughs> she didn't read Dr. Spock. She was old school. What's my point? My point is, guys, it wouldn't take anybody any time to find anything you and I have ever done wrong. I mean, I said a minute ago, even the thought of foolishness is sin, Right? So what I don't you to miss about this whole thing is the fact that Jesus, they found nothing wrong with him. Pilate sends all this investigative team out just to find anything that would allow him to be justifiably put to death. And they come back saying, we got nothing. And Pilate declares, not just I don't find fault. He said, I find no fault in him. I can't find anyone who has anything bad to say about him. I can't find a customer he ever dealt with. I can't find a neighbor. I can't find a student. There is no one in his orbit. Even his own family have nothing bad to say about him. I find no fault in him. He was declared to be the son of God by power, by the spirit of holiness. And then thirdly, he said, through the resurrection of the dead. Man, the fact that Jesus got up out of that grave and he walked out with the keys of death and hell by his side, that had never happened before. Jesus has the power over death. Jesus determined exactly the moment in which he would die, and he knew exactly the moment in which he would come back to life. And he walks out of that grave. And so I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, that Jesus was just as much man as though he were never God while being just as much God as though he were never man. 
He was a son born, a child born, a son given. Given, meaning the cross. He was given. He was given to die. I've told you before, salvation wasn't an afterthought on the part of God. Remember I said Jesus was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world? Never depict Jesus as a victim on the cross. He came to the cross for the express purpose of dying there. He knew exactly what he was coming to do. He came to do the will of his Father, which was ultimately to justify us, to make us just as if I'd never sinned, to cleanse us and purify us so one day we could stand in his presence. So he was a child born, a son given. And this is the last one. The Bible says the government will be on his shoulder one day. You see the royalty of Jesus. One of these days, guys, this hadn't happened yet, but one of these days, Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign on this earth. Let me give you a little quick rundown of my view of prophetic things. It's free like the rest. I believe the next event on the calendar of eternity is the rapture of the church. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, one day the Lord himself will ascend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and those who died, those bodies that are in the earth, will be resurrected, recreated, reunited with those spirit and souls that are with the heavenly Father, the dead in Christ. And we which were alive and remain will be caught up. The word rapture comes from the idea of being caught up. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. So the rapture is the next event. Now Jesus, his feet won't touch the earth. We'll be caught up. He comes for his own. The next event that happens, happens at the end of the great tribulation period, because when the church is drawn out, there will begin a seven year period on this earth called a period of great tribulation. Some people believe that Jesus will come in the middle of that tribulation period. They are uh, mid-trib. Some people say he'll come at the end of that tribulation. They are post-trib, but I'm a preemie. <laughs> I am pre-tribulational, pre-millennialist. This is where I am on that. And that, and a cup of coffee gets you nothing. It's just an opinion. But it's a well-studied opinion. And I believe at the end of that period, Jesus now will return, not for his own, because we're with him. He's going to return with his own. The Bible says we're going to return riding horses. So for some of you, I suggest you ought to cowboy up. Learn to ride, because you're going to need that one day. We're going to return with him. And the Bible says his feet touches the Mount of Olives. I don't know if you've had the privilege of going there, uh, but there at the Mount of Olives, you have the Valley of Kidron that goes up toward the Eastern Gate. And right now, the Eastern Gate on the ancient city is walled shut. And if you ask anyone there, why is that wall closed? They'll say, because we're waiting on the Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, we'll open that and he'll ride through. Well, they're looking for him to come the first time. We're looking for him to come the second time. And when he comes, he'll come and he'll go right through that. And what he's going to do, he'll begin the millennial reign. And he'll establish his throne on the throne of David. And can you imagine just for a moment all the satellite trucks of the world as they're rushing to get news crews there to try to cover this cataclysmic event that's just happened in that ancient city as Jesus Christ has just come out of the heavens back to the earth and all of a sudden the reporters are gathering in the throne room and Jesus walks in. You talk about intimidating. These reporters have covered priests and potentates and they've covered presidents and princes, but they've never covered Jesus. And Jesus walks into that throne room and he takes his place and he said, well, I'll have your first question. And they sit in stunned silence before the creator. 
And then he'll say, well, since none of you seem to have questions for me, I'm going to outline my agenda for the next thousand years. He said, first of all, the lion is going to lie down with the lamb. He said, you're going to beat your weapons of war into plowshares. You're going to study war no more. He said, you're not going to need the funeral homes because nobody else is going to die. We're not going to need the hospitals because there's nobody going to be sick because the healer is now in the land. You're going to get along with everybody. You're going to love everybody. You're going to treat everybody right. And that's my agenda for the next thousand years. You know what happens? He gets up as majestically as he walked in and he walks out of that room. And those reporters rush to try to make the headlines. And the headlines are simply this. He is wonderful. He's wonderful. And I'm going to get into that next week. He's counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. One day can I tell you every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why I can tell you, friend, it might get heavy and it might get difficult, but I've read the, read the last book of the Bible. We win. <laughs> you're going to be okay. Listen, if you're a child of God, this is the only hell you're ever going to deal with. You're dealing with it right now. This is it. If you don't know Jesus and you die in that condition, this is the only heaven you'll ever know. So if you don't know him this morning as I close, I highly recommend him. I encourage you to trust him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love each one of us. You know us by name. You came into this world as one of us. You took upon yourself our sin, satisfying the justice of God there at the cross. And then in power, in the spirit of holiness, according to the resurrection of the dead, you affirmed your deity. And Father, we know one day you're going to rule and reign on this earth. People who curse by your name one day will say, you're wonderful. People who deny your name one day will not be able to deny the fact you are the king of kings. You are the Lord of lords. And every knee, every knee will bow and confess that. Thank you, Father, that we know you. Thank you that we've trusted you. And I pray for my friends in the room or those watching online who may never have settle that issue. They may never have invited you into their heart. May this be the moment right where they are, where they humble their heart and pray this simple prayer, Lord Jesus, come into my heart, forgive my sin. I believe you died on the cross and I believe you did rise on Easter. And with everything I know about me, I now trust all that I know about you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us by visiting metchurch.com so that we can follow up with you this week. We look forward to seeing you next week.